Hello and welcome to the Cat Maste Chronicles podcast. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from pet owners about their projects, businesses and ventures. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, founder of Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with pet owners to chat about their individual journeys and of course, their beloved pets. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Cat Mask Day Chronicles. This week we are joined by Katie Commodore. She is an amazing professional artist and much more. Katie's parents could have told you that when she was a toddler, she would grow up to be an artist, despite years of her insisting that she was going to be an astronaut and them sending her to space camp twice. Never giving up on her dreams of painting Martian landscapes and testing low gravity pastels, she went to art school, which surprisingly lacked the rigorous science background NASA required. Katie attended the Maryland Institute College of Art and spent time abroad seeking out the world's most magnificent works of art. She's also a cat mom to two adorable kitties, who we will find out all about at the end of the show. But I'm super excited to speak to Katie and find out more about her. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. Um, I've told the listeners a little bit about you, but if you could share a little bit more about yourself, that would be amazing. It's great to be here. I'm not, I'm not sure what else there is to to put in there. Like you got you got space camp. You got yeah. I'm a didn't ever become an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> I am an artist. Yeah. Um, I live in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island is the tiniest state in the United States. And is not actually an island. It's completely landlocked. Um, well, not completely landlocked, but we have the ocean okay. and then Massachusetts and Connecticut on the other sides. Um, so very much not an island. Uh, <laughs> I now teach at Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and I'm still just, you know, trying to become a, a famous artist. I mean, trying? Like, oh. you, are, you are amazing. <laughs> You know, all of us are are still trying until until all of a sudden all of my bills are paid by art sales yeah. and I no longer need a day job. I get it. That I'm not a famous artist yet. But you know, I'm like I'm like 15, 20 minutes away from that by like next Tuesday. Um so let's start by speaking about your life growing up. As I mentioned, your parents already knew you would become an artist, which is pretty amazing, but they say our parents know us best, but you had other plans, right? Always had other plans. You never, who, whoever does exactly what their parents think they're true. supposed to do. That's true. Um, my mother's an engineer and my dad majored in math before like computer science was a major. Wow. So really he was a computer science major and worked for IBM forever. And my mother worked in paper production for okay. a really long time. Uh, so she started off at Scott Paper Company and then worked for Kimberly Clark, who makes a Kleenex and um, Kotex and 
I'm trying to think of their toilet paper that they used to have. I think it was called Cottonelle. No. Uh, <laughs> so she was, she's, she's an engineer. She's 100% like logical engineer. That's so cool. We were, we were brought up in a very, uh, very liberal, but encouraging and educated household. Like mm. we were super into the sciences and travel and going to all the museums and you wanted to learn something. My parents would make it possible to learn something. And I'm the eldest. I have a little brother. And I was this I was an incredibly stubborn, um, single-minded kid. Like when I when I wanted to do something, I just did it. <laughs> if I didn't want to do something, I wasn't gonna do it. There's nothing you could do to, to make me do that. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I expressed interest in any in anything, they were so excited. Like, you want to learn how to roller skate? Yes, we will get you lessons in roller skating because I wouldn't do any organized activities. Like, no, I'm not going to be a Girl Scout. No, I'm not going to join that club. Like, no, I'm not going to camp. Are you crazy? <laughs> and eventually we moved, we moved to Florida and in South Florida, most of the school systems at the time had a club called Young Astronauts. Yeah. And who doesn't want to be an astronaut in fourth right? grade? And so I joined Young Astronauts and it was so cool. We made rockets. We got to meet with NASA people because Cape Canaveral is not that far away and met with astronauts. And we did a field trip to Cape Canaveral once to meet with a bunch of folks. And they looked at us as like fifth graders at the time and went, by the time you're 35, we're going to be going to Mars. Wow. And for Mars missions, that's a, it's a long mission. 35 is our optimal age. Mm-hmm. So set yourself on track now and you guys will be the ones going to Mars. And so I went to space camp in fifth grade and then we moved to Connecticut. And as I continued to plan out my way to be an astronaut, that meant I had to, I mean, my parents are completely anti-military. So there's no way I was going to get there via the air force, the way most astronauts get there. And so I was like, okay, well, then I need to learn how to fly on my own. So when I was 15, they, uh, they paid for me to take flight lessons and go to ground school. And here I didn't have my driver's license yet. And I was trying to learn how to fly an airplane (laughs) (laughs) and went to space camp again at about that time um, for their, their high school level class, their camp, and then got to the point in like, Flying a plane where you, you, at the time, you had to stall an airplane, which means you have to purposefully point the plane towards the ground and make it fall out of the sky and then, like, save yourself. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't do that. Like, I I, I just, I can't. I can't. You can't. You're going to have to purposefully make the plane fall out of the sky. And then the way to stop you from falling out of the sky is to accelerate towards the ground until you build up enough velocity, like velocity to have lift on your wings to pull you back up. And that that's. uh, No, 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 I can't. I can't. I can't. No. So I didn't I never actually got my pilot's license because I wasn't willing to stall my airplane. Yeah, and uh, eventually gave it up, and uh, got into physics a lot. But it it, was, it didn't matter. I was going to go to art school. Like, 
no, how, no matter how good I was at math and science, I'm really good at drawing and yeah. really, really good at drawing. And so that was, it made more sense. And it's definitely more entertaining, I think, in the long run. Yeah. Who knows what I'd be doing if I actually went into sciences? I'd probably just be stuck staring at a computer all day. Oh, no. Right, exactly. Like, oh. Do you think it was in your head, like, all the, like, during that time, do you think art was always, like, in the back of your mind? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. 100%. Like, I was always taking art classes. I was always drawing. I was in all the AP art classes. But, I mean, I, I was, I, in high school, by my senior year of high school, I dropped Spanish to take auto tech. I dropped social studies to take more art classes. So that by the, my senior year, I was in advanced placement physics, which is like college level physics and four art classes. Wow. So there, like, yes, I loved science. I would, I think being an astronaut's got to be the coolest job in the universe or being like an actual theoretical physicist. It'd be amazing, but I don't think I'm actually smart enough in like the grand scheme of the world. Like Stephen Hawking's, I am not. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I've always loved art and my parents, despite being incredibly intelligent, logical, productive members of society, sat me down and were like, you've always loved art. If, if your art career fails, you can always go back to school for science and follow what you're good at, as opposed to being what most parents will be, are like and go, oh my God, you want to go to art school? Don't be absurd. Where, how will you get a job? And, you know, encouraging me to go for science because, well, I don't know, that's actually, how do you get a job with a science degree either? But <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's better than philosophy. Like, mm-hmm. You had the best parents ever, by the way. Like, I wish <laughs> I had your parents growing up because they sound awesome. They do have pretty good parents. They're, they're good people. Yeah. They're very, they're very, uh, I mean, it's funny because I think if they've been really strict and tried to direct what directions I would have gone in, it would have, it would have backfired so hard and mm-hmm. it would have been terrible. And I just would have been a nightmare of a child, <laughs> much less a nightmare of a teenager and instead they just took the the avenue of encouragement and you know enabling me to do whatever it was I wanted to do because I was going to do it I was going to do it anyway like they couldn't have stopped me from doing anything I don't think wow (laughs) here you are yeah exactly here I am like (laughs) you know Finally got gallery representation and having shows all over the place and getting to, you know, teaching kids, you know, and that that is just like, oh my God, they think I know what I'm doing and here I am (laughs) (laughs) making it every week. (laughs) It's amazing though, to look back and then like Mm -hmm. reflect. I love doing that. Yeah. Yeah. When I was uh, in first grade, so in my early child, we moved a lot growing up because my dad worked for IBM. So my early education years were at a, a, a Quaker school in Pennsylvania. Ah. And in first grade, we had to write our autobiography. It might not have been first grade. It might have been second or third grade. I take that back. It might have been second grade because I'm pretty sure it was it was 
more complete sentences than I was capable of in first grade. Okay. <laughs> and and the, so, you know, you get to like, you know, second grade and then you have to make it up. Hmm. And there's a part in there of what am I going to be doing when I'm 35? Okay. And at 35, I was going to be uh, a famous artist showing my artwork all over the place. And like the picture, yeah. the drawing I did of my artwork is like, you know, amazing abstract art because at that age everybody that was anybody you know they're famous and they do abstract art yeah except for like Gauguin but you know he that was old and dead stuff Mm -hmm. and and then at like 50 I was going to own a mansion (laughs) where all of my artist friends would come to hang out and we would just have parties and make art and like that was going to be my life and like it ends at like 50 that's the end of my life. If I have this mansion filled with artists, perfection. At no point am I married. At no point are there children. Like yeah. at no point is there anything else but me, my art, and then a mansion. Amazing. And I'm I'm 42 now. Mm-hmm. And at 40, I bought a mansion without like realizing what I was doing. No. I bought a, a this giant Victorian that's a uh, mixed use building where one floor is residence and the other two floors are office spaces, but it's 6,000 square feet. Like it's a mansion. Yeah. yeah. And, and it started renovating the, the third floor. I, I did, I met somebody, I got married, he's got kids. So now I've got stepkids okay. and the half of my plan around renovating the third floor involved this beautiful studio space space for my artist friends to come visit and the biggest dining room table in a, in history so that I can throw epic dinner parties. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm totally fulfilling my second grade autobiography. Like 100%. I saw the future and I'm fulfilling it. And like second grade me would be happy, except there's not nearly enough pink in my mansion, which (laughs) that's that's fine. (laughs) Wow. Not a lot of people could say that. I don't think I've ever met anyone in my life who have said that they wanted to do something when they were that age and they actually fulfilled it. Like I don't Yeah. Think yeah, and it didn't it didn't occur to me that I fulfilled it yeah. until maybe like a year ago and I went, "Holy shit." Like yeah. 8-year-old me nailed it. Like yeah. Whoa. <laughs> How did you do that? Like, right, exactly. Oh, I was so smart as an eight-year-old. What happened? <laughs> wow. I feel like I need to ask every eight-year-old I meet now. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like have them write it down, mm. tuck it away somewhere, and when yeah. they're fifty, look back. Are they right? Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I'm really impressed. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a bit in my twenties that went totally awry, but you know, I, mean, okay. I came back on track. I guess. I mean, that's what <laughs> everyone. Yeah, that's what the twenties are for, right? Yeah. It's just like the wasted decade. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> everyone <laughs> experiences it. Um, so then you decided after, like, you know, your astronaut plans, you'd coming back to that. Sorry, um, you decided to go to art school. Mm-hmm. But even then, you were still dreaming of oh, yeah. and painting Martian lands. I mean, what was art school like for you? Art school, I went, uh, it's, it's, so in the United States, there are like, you know, I mean, it's anywhere. There's, you know, the top couple of art schools. Okay. 
And when I was a senior in high school, the top schools were MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art, and RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. And they would like, you know, change first, second place, back and forth every year. And I don't know if it was just like absolute ignorance on my part or just, I don't know what I was thinking. For college, I only applied to those two schools. Okay. I And like nobody only applies to two colleges. Like what was I thinking? Why didn't my parents sit there and go, shouldn't you apply to a safety? Like <laughs> that, that was it. All I did was apply to Micah and RISD and I got into both. Wow. And wow. it, I, I wound up going to, to Micah at the end of the day because they had better dorms for the freshmen and, <laughs> and they um, seemed more liberal. Okay. They seemed more all about um, interdisciplinary art. And if you, even if you, you have to declare a major, but you could take classes outside of your major and you could use other major space without being in classes. So it was much more free flowing Okay. Uh, when it came to art, whereas RISD seemed very much like you declare your major and you declare your major your sophomore year. Okay. You declare your major and that's your track. Like, yes, that's you, you know, like that's it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so college was, was great. Um, you know, if I wanted to do ceramics, I just had to go down to the ceramics studio and I would do some ceramics and they would fire it for me. And it was fantastic. Like, and if I wanted to work in sculpture, I just went down the sculpture building and, you know, had somebody teach me how to weld and worked in sculpture. And like, it was, it was so easy to just get an idea in your head and then try to do it Mm. because you, you could. And at the same time, I was one of those, I had a lot of scholarships and because I, I had such good grades in high school, like it was one of the desired kids to have it. Like a, um, if there was anything I wanted, I just went to the president and was like, I want to learn glass blowing because they had no glass department. And they'd be like, well, I mean, you could do an intern in it, but you can't do an intern until your junior year. And I think I was a sophomore. I was like, well, maybe I'll transfer to RISD. They have a glass <laughs> department. And they'd be like, hold on, let me make some phone calls. We'll get you that internship. No. I get the internship and like go learn glass blowing. Yeah. And then there was a moment where there's a, there was a science credit that you have to fulfill at, at Micah. And I, I didn't want to take the like, you know, science for, for artists class. And at the time, Space Camp still had a college level course that was like the summer long. And I was like, I would like to take my science credit at Space Camp, please. <laughs> and they, wow. they were like, well, let me let us look into it and think about it. And I was like, well, you gotta, you don't have much time to look. I gotta apply for it. And they came back and were like, yeah, we'll accept that as as your science credit. And then Space Camp did away with the program, like immediately after that. So I didn't get to do college level space camp, but it was just kind of, it was more of just this complete indulgence in anything I wanted. Yeah. Like in some way I'm like, I'm like the most spoiled kid ever. But have free reign basically. (laughs) (laughs) And then 
never happens. Like here I am a brown girl and like, sure, whatever you want, you can do it. Like, here you go. Here are the keys to the kingdom. Amazing. Do whatever you want. And then I was like, oh, I think I want to go into medical illustration because I was an illustration major Mm -hmm. and loved the sciences. And so they, they like created the beginnings of a program with Johns Hopkins University so that I could start taking uh, pre-med and anatomy classes and stuff like that as part of the illustration department, which of course, then I was like, no, I was just joking. I don't want to do that. (sighs) And now they have a program that does that. Like they have a a dual major between Johns Hopkins and Micah to do medical illustration. And is that because of you? No, I don't think it's just because of me. I'm sure there were other kids that, that were interested in that. Like it's a really interesting field and and there aren't that many places where you can get the uh, like the rigorous enough education to do that well, you know, like you really need to be able to draw, you need to be able to see, mm. but also you need to know what you're looking at. And art schools don't have good biology departments. Like, <laughs> yeah, of course, cool. <laughs> you know, a couple of skeletons floating around, but they don't really have good biology departments. Yeah. <laughs> so it was. It, yeah, school was school. I was I was very uh, lucky when it came to school. Yeah, yeah, extremely. Yeah, and by the yeah. time I graduated, nobody knew what my major was. Like, oh. if you ask the kids I graduate with, and I'm friends with a lot of them still, they they still aren't exactly sure what my major was. Was my major fibers? <laughs> was I a sculpture major? Wasn't wasn't I a a, a drawing major, no. printmaking major? And I was like, no, I was in illustration. Oh, <laughs> right, exactly. My my undergrads in illustration. Oh, something I've never really used. Yeah. Wow. You never know. Mm-hmm. Come into play. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I got away with it, and and. But at the end, all that really matters is that I really learned how to draw. I learned how to like figure out other materials and do things like instead of getting an idea in my head and being like, oh, but I don't know how to use clay and I don't know how to, I don't know, insert art form here. Instead, you know, it was, ah, I want to do that. Okay, let me go over to that building and figure out how to do that. Like... Somebody in there will show me how to. Somebody will show me how to use a press. Someone will, you know, remind me that you have to be careful with clay and not get any air bubbles in it because if I explode everybody's stuff in the kiln, they'll be very mad at me. Like, <laughs> Micah was great, was great with that sort of stuff. What a privilege. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good school. Yeah. I highly recommend it for undergrad. Okay. Okay. So if anyone's listening, thinking about it, you know where to go. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know how that kind of experience has kind of shaped you now into an artist. And I'd love to know more about your artwork and your process for creating and making. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. Uh, my artwork, I do erotic portraits of my friends with a lot of pattern and a lot of really uh as the creator of it mind numbingly tiny detail work uh i 
have a gargantuan collection of the tiniest paintbrushes you've ever seen. <laughs> and then uh, recently I've started doing a lot of embroidery. And so I just have, you know, beads and everything. And, and you kind of sit there and you go, what do you mean you just embroidered that? But yes, yeah, so I do, I do erotic portraits of my friends where I don't, I don't tell them what to do. I don't ask my friends to pose for me. I wait for them to decide that they want to pose for me. Okay. Um, because that's part is kind of important. I want it to be about them, mm. not about what I think is erotic or powerful, but what makes them feel mm. that erotic power and happiness. And so in, in that way, I mean, like what I imagine is being sexy and powerful and awesome is limited to what I feel is sexy yeah. and powerful and awesome. And so that's, that's an incredibly narrow way of looking at, at sexuality. Mm, exactly. And so I think it's, it's great that I have so many friends that are willing to show me their sexuality in this way. Mm. And, and that, the, the, the breadth of that, but at the same time, the like the strange narrowness of it, like there still is a very consistent um, way that people people express themselves when okay. it comes to what makes them feel confident and and hot, like yeah, what what gives that little spark in your step, sort of thing. Like there is there is a consistentness in there as you start to like do this a lot. Right. Even if it's a, if there's a difference in costumes and partners and lifestyles and stuff like that, there's there's something that doesn't change at all. Interesting. And yeah, it's so it's it's been, and some of my friends I've gotten to photograph them over years. Um, so I've gotten to see how their fetishes and their turn-ons and their sense of self and power has changed over a mm. decade or two. And, and that's also been really interesting and fun yeah. to, to see what stayed, what's changed and, and just, yeah, it's been, it's great. Like it's so much better than, than drawing still lives or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's great that you give people that freedom as well to be able to express themselves. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny when I was, when I was in, in freshman year of college, Playboy magazine came out with uh, what they were calling a modern day Kinsey report. Okay. Uh, the Kinsey report was a study done by the, by, Oh, I'm spacing on his first name. Kinsey is his last name. Um, a sex psychologist out of the university of Illinois. I'm totally butchering this. You're <laughs> supposed to like make myself sound like some sort of sex study expert and I'm butchering <laughs> it all. Uh, he established what was called this Kinsey Institute later, but his seminal initial study was on the sexuality of the American man. Mm. And it was, he, he interviewed thousands of men about, you know, their entire sex lives. When do they first have an erection? How many of them masturbate? How often they masturbate? Have they ever had a homosexual encounter? Like at what age, blah, 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 forever and ever and ever. And then later he followed it up with a study on, on the American woman. And both studies like just rocked the nation's idea of sexuality in America pretty hard. Cause there was 
you know, the, the prevalence of homosexuality was infinitely higher than anybody had ever imagined, much less the age of everyone's first sexual encounter and, and everything. Mm-hmm. And Playboy then did this like much smaller study um, in honor of its 50th anniversary, the, the Kinsey study, 60th anniversary, I think. And I've always been obsessed with porn. So of course I had this issue of, of Playboy. <laughs> and, and the bit that stuck with me was that 40% of adult women had never had an orgasm. Okay. And I went, what? What? And I'm pretty sure at the time I also had not had an orgasm. Yeah. But like I was 18, I'm not supposed to have had an orgasm by then yet. I haven't figured my shit out. Mm-hmm. And just the idea that 40% of us were going to make it to, you know, quote unquote adultness, like over 40, because I think that's what they qualified it as an adult and not have an orgasm. Crazy. Right. It just blew my mind. And then I was like, but why could this be? And part of my mind decided it had to be because the only sex ed we get is pornography Mm. and pornography is just so fake. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's doing this and actually feeling powerful and sexy. It's a job, like they're just doing a job. So it, it took years for me to start doing these portraits of my friends, but what it it really it started at that moment freshman year and when i finally pulled it all together it was because i was i wanted to start showing real people's sex lives mm. real people enjoying their sex lives and like you too could have this much fun having sex like yeah. Yeah. sort of thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of in these images. There's nothing taboo in these images because look at how much fun they're having. <laughs> and this is, sex is great. Yeah. And <clears throat> that's where it, it really all began. And then it became more, more about reclaiming that sexual power as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you too can enjoy sex and have orgasms. Um, because I think the power comes first, like yeah. until you you feel yourself and are confident in yourself. And like, you know, even, even if you're in like a three piece suit and you're feeling yourself and you're like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is my, this is my sexy go-to like that, that is attractive and confidence. And like, Mm -hmm. man, that, that's the person I want to sleep with. Mm -hmm. So that's where it really all wound up and still is. It's so important. I think it's so important to show, realness like Mm -hmm. as you mentioned you know porn is fake and also like I really don't know the statistics but it it feels like a lot of it is made to arouse or or benefit men oh yeah absolutely yeah like I'm not even counting that part like yeah the 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 gender twist of who is porn made for and who's it supposed to be consumed by like I yeah that's like a whole nother 14 hours of discussion mm-hmm. where I can then talk about, Oh, but wait, there are some great women based women made fo- porn organizations out there and, and queer created porn and all that stuff that, mm-hmm. that works for our brains way better than, than this stuff. But 
that's also, you know, it's, it's, there was women made porn and, and female identifying queer porn that was being created in like the seventies and eighties, but it was just so tiny. It was so small that it didn't have any mass distribution. Yeah. Whereas now with the internet, it's so much easier to find stuff that's not just for for guys. (laughs) I mean, you can't even say just for guys. It's not just for cis men. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, the the porn industry has gotten much better, but it's still, it's still broken and needs to be a little, I think, and part of it, I think still has to do with just, it's still so taboo to be a sex worker and being mm-hmm. somebody that makes porn makes you a sex worker. And you might as well be a prostitute, which is like the worst thing anybody could ever be in the world, according to so many of our social norms, which is not, it's not valid and not true. Like, yes, it's terrible for some people, but for some people it's a job that they really like. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we disrupt our thinking around sex work in a way that that you know is it takes it away from the fact that we think sex is dirty well sex isn't dirty we all do it like oh my god how can how how did we all forget like that 1920s america was sex positive like Mm. everything didn't get sex bad until you know, we started censoring everything in movies and yeah, and women's, you know, making it back to women's place, married and in-home housekeepers, that sort of stuff. Like this is, it's, it hasn't always been this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Like there's no, we made it up. Like <laughs> sex isn't bad. We made it up. We all enjoy it. So let's, let's rethink this and change the stereotype change the thinking change the the moral value that we've assigned to it mm-hmm. and make it more in line with reality instead of some dead white guy's idea of what yeah. was okay have you been to amsterdam katie sorry i have i did okay. a residency okay. there years okay. ago okay. in the red light district and right. I went over there with such plans. Like I was going to be there all summer. I was going to do portraits of the sex workers in their real lives. Like what made them feel sexy when they weren't working? Interesting. And not a single woman would talk to me. No. When was this? uh, 2009, I think. Okay. Okay. And... And so I, I was trying, I went to the the sex workers coalition and I'm trying to work through them. And they're like, no, you don't get it. They're not going to talk to you at all. Wow. And, and I was like, I, I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed. Like here, those portraits were going to be amazing, hmm. but not, if I can't do it, I can't do it. And so instead I wound up doing secret portraits of the men looking at the sex workers Interesting. So I was getting pictures of the guys giving these like absolutely like lewd and terrible gazes and looks and gestures and, and stuff that you're just like, yeah, I know that there's a half naked woman in that window. Mm. Like we all know we've all seen naked women before 
And like, she's still a human being. And this behavior is just absurd. Like, what on earth? This is the male gaze on like crack. And so I did a series of, of men looking at sex workers that was, I don't, I don't think I've ever really, sh- I've ever shown them. I don't think everybody's, anybody's ever really seen them because I find them really disturbing and I don't want, I don't want to popularize that sort of thing. I don't want that to be my message that okay. this is okay because they're really disturbing paintings right. and not because like, you know, the guys are beautifully painted and they've got great, you know, traditional Dutch patterns in the backgrounds that I went and researched at the amazing public library in Amsterdam. It's gorgeous. And yeah, I just found them, they found them hard to make and I found them hard to look at. And yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love Amsterdam. It's a great city. (laughs) I would totally live there. It's so wonderful. You should go back again because I think I, I don't know. I feel like now people would be like more open to, to talk and, to have those kind of like photos. Maybe. Yeah. I mean the 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 most of the sex workers in Amsterdam are not Dutch. Yes, um, I know. Yeah. So many of them are trafficked there and they're not doing yeah. it because they want to. They're they're sex trafficked. Yeah. And so I'm not sure that that part has changed. Okay. Like I can't imagine because it's still like it's it's forced slavery. Yeah. You know, you don't you're not making the money. Your your pimp is and I think if I could, if I'd been there longer, I think I could have found the workers that were doing it by choice. Well, yes. Exactly. And they probably would have talked to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I just wasn't, I was only there for three months and don't speak Dutch. Not that most of those workers speak Dutch either, yeah. but I think, yeah, if I, if I lived in Amsterdam, I probably could realize that project, but being just a, a visiting artist, it was a little too sure. hard. And then just as a woman living in the red light district, like walking to the grocery store, every guy assumes that you must be a sex worker because, you know, I'm obviously not Dutch and I'm brown, which is half of the the women in the windows are also brown. So go to the grocery store, you get propositioned out every other step. And that part was very much like, oh my God, like, of course, of course, like living in the red light district for any woman of color is going to to have this stigma to it. Mm. Most of the sex workers don't live in the red light district because the housing's too expensive. It was it was it was a very it was a very, very interesting in educational residency and I loved it. It was it was so fantastic. Yeah. and eye-opening and yeah I came back and I think that's when I started doing um larger scale artworks I started doing much more life-size pieces because I wanted to to start it, it became kind of important to me to start showing that these are people I wanted them to be identifiable as and relatable as to the viewer mm-hmm. as this is a person and not some precious imaginary beautiful thing Mm. like this is a real person this is this is how they feel powerful and beautiful Mm -hmm. and I want that to come across and and let you understand instead that like you are also a person who could feel powerful and beautiful and take all of the love that you're seeing that was put into that piece of artwork 
and hold that close and relate to people that way. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that you you got to experience that as well, because when you were speaking about it, Amsterdam just came into my head straight away. So that's mm-hmm. why I had to ask you um, if you've been there. I constantly look at little ha- like houses in the Netherlands and I could afford. Like, yeah. Can I just move there? Like, <laughs> do I have to? But am I allowed to abandon my eight-year-old dream yeah. to go like live in the Netherlands now? Oh, yeah. I, I think eight-year-old me would be okay with that too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fortunate yeah. enough to live only like a two-hour flight away. So I go every year. Oh. Like That was the best part. Yeah, yeah. Because of the lockdown, I haven't been able to go, but I literally went just before the lockdown happened. Mm-hmm. Right, um, why not? It's a weekend. Like yeah. I, I'm two hours, two and a half hours from New York. Like It's like yeah. me driving to New York City for the weekend you get to go to Amsterdam. I just get to go to New York, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you also worked as a studio manager and assistant, personal assistant for Mayalin. Is that Mayalin? Mayalin. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the designer of the Vietnam Memorial in Washington. Mm-hmm. What did that entail of, and what was that experience like to work alongside like someone like that? I, it was it was really interesting. It was a very I'm really glad I did that job. Uh, I learned a lot about what it really takes to to be that level of of productive and famous. Mm-hmm. Like Maya is a hard worker and 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 an impeccable speaker. I've never heard anyone who is as good about talking about her artwork as she is. She wow. is wonderful to hear talk about her art. And her process was really interesting to, to observe also. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a, a job. It was a hard job. Like mm. our deadlines were always fast and looming and we worked overtime. We were, in that studio so much. There were five of us working there most of the time. And, but at the same time, like the the last big project I worked on was her wave field at Storm King, which is a, a, a large sculpture park um, north of New York City by a couple hours um, in the mountains, uh, Storm King Art Center. And the Wayfield is uh, huge earthworks where basically we just reshaped the the hillside and it looks like somebody's just blowing on the earth and causing it to ripple. Wow. But those ripples are 11 to 17 feet tall <laughs> and they're made out of dirt. And so I was uh, the, the, the site manager, like the person, the, the art, Maya's representative to the site to direct the construction crew for months. And it was just me up there guiding Frank, who is the, I think his last name is Tantillo. Um, he was in a, a, a front end loader. Is that what they are? Like the, the big ones with the elbows and the, like your hand scoopy at the oh, end. Oh, okay. I know. Describing the machine correctly. And yeah, you're like, yeah, I know what you're saying. And so you like pick up the dirt with a hand scoopy and then dump it somewhere <laughs> or, or he would just use that scoop thing 
to gently shape these giant mounds of dirt. He was so delicate. And it was like, it was like watching a ballet Mm. while he's just barely shaping the contours of these giant earthworks with the most delicate touch by this giant pieces of construction equipment. And it was, it was amazing. It was so much fun. I can imagine. That must it have been was, so amazing to watch as well. Oh, it was great. It was like the best three months of my life. It was so good. <laughs> That's awesome. I know that you've also worked in some museums as well. What yeah, that's where I got my start. Like my first oh, jobs were all in museums. I started off when I was uh, 15 as a student docent at the Aldrich Museum of Contemporary Art in Connecticut. And then went on to be the gallery manager there for a while. And then worked at the RISD Museum when I was at RISD for grad school. Yeah. In the prints, drawings, and photographs department. And then was working at the drawing center when I first moved to New York. And thought I would be in museums forever and ever because I really, I love being surrounded by art. I love um, getting to sit with art for that sort of extended long time. Like your opinion of, of the pieces change drastically when you're staring at it for eight hours a day for three months. And that, but that it's an amazing change. Yeah. And what you think you liked isn't what you actually like in the end of the day. At the end of the three months, your favorite pieces are the ones that you sat there and were like, you glossed over and didn't give the time of day when it first went up. So interesting. And it's because it, it absolutely changes. And when I, when I you know, started working for Maya, I still thought that I was going to wind up back in museums but they don't they don't pay and when you live in new york you got to you got to pay a lot of rent yeah. and so after maya i then just i started working virtually um cuz it gave me way more flexibility with my schedule to make art mm-hmm. and was still making it allowed me to still make enough money to to pay all my bills so i've been uh, a virtual worker way before way everybody before. else was yeah. <laughs> For about for about the past twelve years, I've, oh, I've wow, okay. virtually. Oh, you know, going to an office occurred to me. It was like, oh, I hate commuting and putting on pants every morning. How would I make it so I don't have to do that anymore? Mm. Oh, <laughs> there's a whole world of working virtually. Uh huh. That sounds yeah. ideal. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great. Like, I don't know what took the rest of you this long to discover this. Right. But, I've been angry uh, for this. Like, don't worry. I've I've been enjoying this. Oh, man. Not having to go to work is a blessing. Like, (laughs) me, my cats on the couch, bad TV in the background, snacks in the fridge, everything is good. Mm -hmm. And you get to appreciate your time. Like, you know, there's no specific time that you have to be somewhere all the time. Well, not all. I mean, like, it depends on the job. I've had jobs where I really like, I have to be in front of my computer from 10 to six oh, every wow. day. And even if I'm not in front of my computer, I've got to make it look like I'm in front of my computer by <laughs> being right on top of my, my cell phone. Yeah. And, but it's no different than having to be in that office, mm. staring at a computer, staring out my window, dealing with coworkers 
but at least you don't have an hour and a half of commute. Mm -hmm. And if something comes up, you can deal with it. And like, if I need a nap, I can just go take a nap. Like no one's going to (laughs) know. I don't even need to get dressed from the bottom part. Like, and like up until, till now, like, you know, we never did zoom calls. Like, yeah. Ew. And so, so back then, like, I didn't even have to get dressed from the top down. Like, exactly. Matter didn't matter at all. And it also meant that I could go places. Like, Mm. I could work just as effectively from my couch or the beaches of the Bahamas or England or Portugal or Germany Mm. or anywhere. I just had to, you know accommodate for the time difference yeah and it meant that I traveled whenever I wanted to Mm -hmm. and spent some of that time by the pool attached to my computer yeah that sounds good really good (laughs) yeah exactly like life could be so much worse Uh I could have to be in an office (laughs) exactly (laughs) right so you're also the administrative director for Crux LCA, and I'm so intrigued to learn more about this initiative. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what Crux is and what you do? Crux is it's possibly the coolest group of people I've ever encountered, much less worked for. Okay. Crux is a, a cooperative of Black um, and BIPOC creators and or content creators directors, actors, amazing people that do virtual reality, augmented reality, content production and storytelling. Wow. That's incredible. It's all focused on telling, um, lifting black voices and trying to shift the narrative and vocabulary of storytelling in a, this new medium of virtual reality to accommodate for minority voices and black voices and not let it become another white dominated medium like newspapers and books and film and TV and stuff like that. So trying to shift the entire way of telling stories to be more inclusive and include much more of the population. This but sounds a, so interesting because actually, it's, there, it's awesome. Thesis, a part of my thesis was about getting um, people of color, getting black voices across, like um, and like in the world that we live in right now, especially mm-hmm. in England. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to get your voice heard, mm-hmm. absolutely in the creative industries. Mm-hmm. So um, and storytelling is so powerful. So. Mm-hmm. Powerful. So I've been thinking of things to to kind of inv- not invent but like to try and I yeah about that. So this is just so so amazing. Like yeah, we have a, a piece that we were involved in a project we were in, in uh, help create produce called POV meaning point of view mm-hmm. um, that is going to debut at Sundance. I mean, sorry, that's incorrect. It's going to debut at Tribeca um, mm-hmm. in in this in a few weeks and it's it's all about um ai bias uh, especially when it comes to law enforcement Mm. so it's a really interesting it's a great piece um so we're very excited for the 
the rest of the world to to get to see what we've been working on and it's it's neat it's it's an amazing thing to be involved in because so much of storytelling bias I wasn't even aware of even as a brown person like it doesn't even occur to you that the structure of the stories that you're told in via movies and stuff like that are structured for a white audience Mm-hmm. And the stories that are then told through that have to be twisted and molded to still keep that white audience comfortable mm. as opposed to being a story that you could tell to a brown audience that is just something that speaks to them directly because it's their life. Yeah. And what happens when we can change it so that the white audience recognizes their discomfort and then can see why it makes them uncomfortable to view a, a, a black story as a black story. And if we can change the method and the way that that dialogue, that conversation is had within the storytelling to make that the new trope, the new vocabulary and way of telling stories, then that can change everything because it changes the way that everybody has access to the story and everyone relates to the story. And then you're automatically aware of why that makes you uncomfortable as, as a white viewer. And then you can actually be like, Oh my God, we do need to change this. So that that story no longer has to be told that way. Not because we need to tell to make you feel comfortable, but you, but that the rest of the world can change the way they're behaving so that, that story can be comfortable for everybody. Have you heard of a play called Fairview by any chance? I don't know. I haven't. I'm actually like totally not that versed in theater and okay. storytelling. Like, right. Well, you need to check this out. It's okay. amazing. It's called Fairview and it was at the Young Vic Theatre in London and I went to see it. And um, it's a story about a black family and it you just feel like you're watching just a regular show, like nothing really, I mean, it was really good, but like it completely flips around after the interval and mm-hmm. like they kind of inwardly kind of change the gaze and then the focus is actually on the white audience members and mm. then at the end of the play the white audience members are actually asked to join the the cast on the stage and everybody else in the audience who identifies as non-white is told to remain in their seats oh, interesting. So it's so interesting I'm going to send you an email after yes, this please yeah so you can look at it more but it's really really yes please <laughs> so bringing the focus back to you Katie <laughs> in 2007 you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis which is a condition <laughs> that can affect the brain and spinal cord you mentioned to me that after a very stressful day you ended it by going blind and I'm shocked like <laughs> You're laughing, but I'm like, what? what on earth? Like, I want to find out more. Oh my God. It was like the worst day ever. What? So after we just had this conversation about how I work for this, like amazing computer techie people, yeah. um, I have zero computer skills, like negative a billion computer skills. Okay. <laughs> and 
back when I was working for Maya Lin, uh, we, I, I don't know. I don't know what I did. I honestly don't know what I did. I just, you know, you like automatically click yes sometimes because you just want the screen to, you know, you told it to do something. Yes, do it. Yeah. Just do it. Well, I had told the computer to delete our email system. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was, it was Monday. Wow. And I told it to delete the, the, the email system and it did it because I told it to. And it like, yeah, like all of it, gone, all of it, everything, which wasn't like the most horrific thing in the universe. In reality, we had just done a backup over the weekend. Okay. So we really only lost like two days worth of emails okay. and Anything that was really important, like, you know, we'd answered most of the emails that were important that day. Mm. So they're going to reply anything that was like, you know, half important. They're going to email back and be like, mm. yo, why haven't you answered us? And, you know, like, it's it's not really the end of the world. Yeah, It's horrible, but it's not the end of the world. And so at the end of the day, the guys in the office were like, you need a drink. Let's go get a drink. And I went out with them and I had five Manhattans. Okay. which are uh, rye whiskey and sweet vermouth and a cherry, which means there's nothing non-alcoholic in, in this the, beverage. Yeah. There's no ice. There's no water. It's just, it's just whiskey. And I didn't eat dinner. Okay. And I was, I was pretty drunk <laughs> and I'm sitting on the stoop and a stoop in Soho somewhere. And I called up the guy I was seeing at the time. And he was like, cause you know, you know, you know, you he hadn't been dating long and here I am like wasted on a Monday. And he's like, just come over. I'll make you some food. So I go over to his house and he's watching basketball and he's like making me a sandwich. And I lay down on his couch and everything disappeared. No. And I sat back up and he was like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. Everything just went away. Like all I could, everything was just beige and the top and the bottom of the television were a black line that just extended forever. Oh my god! And that was that was it. That's all I had vision wise. And he was like, "You need to go to bed." <laughs> oh. like, yeah, yeah. I, I probably just need to go to sleep. And he like, you know, helped me get upstairs, and I passed out in his bed. Yeah. And the next morning it was like, you know, it was, I wasn't, I couldn't see, see, but it was getting better. Okay. And he was like, you need to go to the doctor. And I was like, no, it's getting better. <sighs> He's like, no, you have to go to the doctor. And I was like, but it's getting better. <laughs> it's probably just like, I don't know. It's probably just the stress. Like maybe, maybe it was like, you know, bad whiskey or something. And he's like, go to the doctor. Mm. And so I called my doctor, made an appointment for the next day. And by then I, I was, I could see pretty much out of one eye almost normally. And the other eye was, was close enough. Like, you know, I'm not, I couldn't read a book, but yeah. I can like, you know, get on the subway. And he was like, well, your eyes look fine to me. Let me send you to this ophthalmic surgeon because it could have been something crazy. Mm. And so I spent like, a day in the ophthalmic surgeon's office while they ran every test in the known universe. And I was, it was terrible. Like I feel bad for everybody with eye issues. Like I don't have vision issues. I've never worn glasses, Okay. but 
oh my Lord, those tests are terrible. Like they're terrible. Like dilating your pupils and shooting air at your eyeball. And then like taking pictures of all of the inside of your eyeball and all that flashing and keep your eyes straight and don't blink. And it was, it was just awful. Yeah. Cause he thought that, um, my retinas might've detached ah. and that would have explained what happened. Uh, but no, my retinas were fine. He wasn't finding anything wrong in the office. And then he started asking me some other health questions and it, it and I'm like, why, like, you know, like, have you ever had anything go numb on you for a long time or, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> Uh, when I was in college, I lost the use of my right arm for three months. And he's like, oh, okay. And he like right sat down and you know, kept going. And at the end of it, he was like, I want to, I want you to get some MRIs because you could have a tumor exerting pressure on your optic nerve, or it could be something else. That's like how he kind of ended it. And I was oh. like, tumor, huh? <laughs> on my eyeball, huh? And he gave me an envelope for my, my general practitioner that was sealed. So I didn't open it. Mm. And to get the MRI, I have to go back to my general practitioner anyway to have him actually request it. So I went back, I gave him the letter and general practitioner reads it in front of me and he goes, Oh, okay. And uh, folds it back up and puts it in the envelope. He goes, all right, well, we'll schedule these MRIs. And uh, do you want to read this? And I'm like, sure, why not? Why not? And in there, it, it's the the eye doctor basically telling my general practitioner that he thinks I have MS. And oh. this is what they really need to be looking for. And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't have MS. Why would I have MS? I don't have MS. And go get the MRIs, get referred to a neurologist, go see the neurologist. First meeting, like I haven't even met this man, sit down at the table at his like office table. And he like, he's, he's fabulous. I'd love this man now. But at that moment, I, I walked out of that office wishing death upon him. And he like crossed his hands and went, darling, you have MS. And I just like started to cry. And he's like, it's not that bad. Like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? And he's like, okay, we're going to make an appointment to do some more tests and have back. And I'll talk to you some more about this. But just so you know, this is probably what's going on. Okay. And I was just right. I was just like, okay, like my life is over. Like, this is terrible. This is terrible. And then, you know, you start doing research on it. And MS is, uh, is when your immune system goes in and starts destroying the the lining of your nerves which is called myelin and at the time I was in the process of leaving myelin's studio Mm -hmm. and I was just like no see it's psychosomatic it's just my body encouraging me to to depart myelin's studio so it's attacking my myelin (laughs) And uh, that wasn't the case. I, I actually just have MS. <laughs> but it's 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 one of those things where it's just like, yeah, I have it, and it does things. And yes, I'm I'm losing 
the my super super fine motor skills like I'm losing my ability to draw and write so how do I change my art practice to still be able to Mm. do the crazy stuff I do that's Mm -hmm. all detail oriented and beautiful without having to to depend on my my hand-eye coordination which is what embroidery started in because I can stab a piece of fabric a thousand times before I get it in the spot I really want it to be as opposed to trying to draw a line, which takes yeah. infinitely more concentration, it seems. But throughout the years, you focused on various mediums, well, including drawing prints, fibers, and scrimshaw, which is work with ivory and shells for our listeners who may not know. Can you tell us about the materials you choose to work with? And now, I guess, more so after the MS diagnosis, like you said, you... Um, started to use the embroidery is there anything else yeah uh is when I I think when I first got diagnosed with MS my artwork got infinitely more complex immediately yeah okay I went gangbusters and started doing really really complex hand-painted patterns and all the backgrounds I think just in in retaliation Mm. like you can't tell me what I can do again. Like the, the stubborn side of me that has been that way since I was three and my parents recognize like, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. Go ahead. Stop me. Like I'll show you what I can do. And then as the years went on and my, my hands got worse, I started doing um, more work in the computer. Uh, So I would do, the early, the pre-sketches in the computer. And then I was also doing um, a bunch of cut pattern pieces. So in my, in, I was doing additions of pieces where the figures were made out of pattern, Mm -hmm. but only in one color. So they were, you really had to look to see what was going on in the image in some of them. And some of them, you could tell exactly if it was just like the figure on a white ground. But some of them, they're on the bed or they're on a couch. So you can see the shape of the couch. And then, you know, there's something on there, but you have to really look because you it's everything's all in black, but it's a different pattern for the figure, different pattern for the couch, different pattern for her clothes or his clothes and seeing how that all comes together. And that was oh, all composed in the computer, then cut by a, a laser cutter. So I didn't have to rely on my hands to do that detail work. Mm. Um, But then I I found that we, you know, as we went through all the meds and stuff, found a a medication that, that I stabilized on pretty well. And, and so I was less worried about having, you know, these long months where I wouldn't be able to use my hands and went back to doing drawings and paintings. Mm. And, uh, but even then, like there'd be weeks where it's 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 the strangest feeling. Like I can't paintbrushes are easier to control than a pencil or a pen. But even so, I'd be painting, and after a few hours, all of a sudden the paintbrush would just seriously like leap out of my hand and do some somersaults and like go across the room. Oh wow. And you sit and you're like, why I didn't throw that. I didn't do that. Like what? what is my hand doing to do that? It's just a, it's just a muscle twitch. Mm. And so, you know, then it becomes an issue of shit. What if I do that? And it falls right smack in the middle of my painting. And now the painting's ruined because I paint in gouache mostly, which is a, a an opaque watercolor. 
Okay. But it's not, you can't paint over it because <laughs> uh-huh. the gouache underneath it will hydrate. So you make a, a splat mark in the middle of that image and you got to start over. Like it's done. And when the backgrounds take a month to paint, that, that's, that's no good. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I came across this technique of digital. I was looking, I was like, all right, I want to do a tapestry because a lot of, a lot of my artwork does draw upon these old techniques that were craft Mm. and mostly women, women driven crafts and didn't become artwork until they were no longer craft work and men took them over and then they became art. Okay. I had the idea of doing these tapestries to continue the the legacy of being a woman reclaiming mm-hmm. this as an as the woman's art. Yes. And found all these companies that would weave me a tapestry, but was gonna cost a fortune. And then I came across this company that would weave me a like a throw blanket that would cost me 50 bucks. And that's like tapestry size. Yeah. And I'm willing to see what that's going to look like for 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. And so I ordered one and it came back and it was amazing. And then I get them and I, my mom, cause I can't sew actually my mother binds the backs in for the, the takes the fringe off and, and binds them so that they're, they're stable mm-hmm. and puts like the, the, the pocket on the top so they can be hung. And then I embroider all over them and I, add all these applique and beads and whatever it is that's speaking to me for the piece. And then, you know, they're embellished and sparkles and embroidered and made to look extra fancy and beautiful. And that's what, what the current work is pretty much right now. During the pandemic, I started beading rocks where Rhode Island has a lot of really beautiful beaches. And so I'd, I'd go for a walk on the beach and found myself picking up rocks like, you know, beach rocks and Mm -hmm. wanting to throw them at people (laughs) and like really, really wanting to throw them at people and sometimes specific people. Like I had a lot of, I still have a lot of rage over 2020 and continuing into 2021. Mm. Like I, I, I would throw rocks at a lot of people if left to my own devices. And so I would put them in my pocket and then I brought them home and I was like, you know, I need to, to not throw this rock at somebody. <laughs> and the way to not throw something at somebody is to make it precious. Mm. To make me like it so much that I can't possibly throw this at someone. It's too pretty. What a waste. And so I've been um, covering them in beads. I've been weaving beads tightly around them so wow. that they're they're now they're now becoming I've been calling them not for throwing at people rocks <laughs> and have about 10 of them now where they're just completely encrusted in bees and they take me weeks some of them take me like I'm the one I'm working on right now I'm, I think I'm on month two of beating and it's just whenever I'm really stressed out and about to like hurt somebody I'd like sit down and watch bad tv and just bead these so now moving on to my favorite part of this show being cats yes (laughs) yay can you tell us a little bit more about your life and journey with cats or pets so far oh i I grew up with cats my parents had a cat before i was born 
Okay. And back then there was still like the little bit of, of taboo about having a cat and a baby in the same house. And so mm-hmm. they were told by lots of people that, oh, now they're going to have to get rid of the cat. My mom was like, no, he was here first. And we know mm-hmm. we like him. Like, <laughs> so I grew up with a cat named Strangeness. Oh, nice. Strangeness was the best. He was the greatest cat ever. He was smart. He could open doors. Wow. He could go for walks with you. <laughs> he was just, he was brilliant. He would come when you called him from like, he was an indoor outdoor cat. Okay. And he was, Strangeness was the best. And he was like my bestest like I loved that cat. I still love that cat. And he's been dead since I was 13. Like not even okay. I think he died when died when I was in fifth grade. So 10. Yeah. And I'm allergic to cats. And oh. I've always been allergic to cats. So he was never allowed in my bedroom. But he would sleep every night outside my door. Aww. Like he loved me. I was his human. I loved him. He was my and then he died. While I was on a school field trip and my parents had to put him to sleep while I was away. And I kind of never, never forgave him for that because I never got to say goodbye to strangeness. Mm-hmm. See, I'm tearing up. It's been 32 years since strangeness died and it still breaks my heart. I know. And I then, a, yeah, right. Exactly. Strange. You're such a good cat. And then after strangeness, we got, we finally like, you know, I don't know how long it was after strangeness died. We went to the humane society to look for a cat. Mm-hmm. there was one cat there who was playing with us through the cage mm-hmm. and we were like, we'll take that kitten. And we named her charm mm-hmm. because strangeness, my mother, the engineer, her background's actually in physics. Okay. And one of my parents' favorite professors in college had a cat named after the scientist that discovered quarks, which are the things that make up atoms. Okay. The sub, the sub tiny nuclear particles that make up atoms are called quarks. And originally they were, they came in what was called three different flavors. There was upness, downness, and strangeness. So my parents named the cat strangeness. Mm-hmm. And then when we got charm, they had just come out with an announcement that they'd discovered three new flavors of quarks, which were truth charm and beauty wow okay so that made upness downness strangeness truth charm and beauty are the things that made particles uh-huh. and so we named charm charm and then like a year after that they came out with saying that no 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 truth and beauty are actually just different spins of upness and downness so there's really only upness downness strangeness and charm and we were like of course there's only charm because we named our cat charm uh-huh. And Charm, even though we bought her because she bought her, we got her, we didn't buy her, adopted her because she was like the most playful kitten at the Humane Society that day. She was a lump. She didn't do anything. She didn't play. She had like, she was a black and white cat and she had a checkerboard face. So her face was asymmetrical. Okay. And I loved this cat. I thought she was beautiful. I wanted to enter her into cat contests. <laughs> and she had like the thinnest, saddest fur. Like she was, she, and she was just fat and lazy Aww. and looked like a little slug when she like went to like full loaf because she had no corners, It'd just be her ears sticking up. So she looked like a slug. And I, I, I loved this cat. She was great. She was so boring and miserable. She was just like a grumpy old lady cat. Yeah, yeah. 
And she had, she taken one of my brother's stuffed animals and was treating it like a kitten for a long time. So she'd carry it around and give it baths. And every once in a while she'd attack it and kick it. And then she'd give it a bath again. <laughs> and so we're like, oh, I wonder if, if Charm like wants a kitten. Like all, all of our cats have always been spayed and neutered, but you know, maybe she wants a kitten. And we were at my grandparents' farm and there's always kittens at the farm pretty much. Okay. And, but the kittens, they're, they're farm cats. You can't just catch them 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, my brother were out looking at the kittens and there's this one kitten who's tiny, oh, so tiny and cute. And we just reached down and picked it up. <laughs> and that was like, okay, well, we caught it. Obviously it's meant to come home with us. Yeah. So we went inside and we got a box and we put the kitten in the box and the kitten smells really bad. So we gave the kitten a bath mm-hmm. and we put it back in the box and we gave the kitten some food and we kept it in the box. And we're like, Oh my God, please, mom and dad, can we take the kitten home? Can we take the kitten home? And my parents were like, no. Mm-hmm. And we were like, but look at the little tiny kitten. It's so tiny. It's so cute. Little brown torty, tortoiseshell kitten. Aww. And eventually they gave in and we took this tiny, 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 tiny kitten home. Mom took the kitten straight to the vet. This kitten, it's got every parasite known to mankind, upper respiratory tract infection, like all of the bugs, all of the things, heart murmur, this kitten going to live a couple years tops. And my mom's like, that's okay. All right. I can handle that. Like, I, we can give this cat an amazing life for a couple of years. Yeah. Great. That cat lived forever. No. And she was just tiny. She was the tiniest little cat. And she was just poofy, poofy brown little tortie. Mm-hmm. And her tail was broken. She'd probably been run over by the tractor. She was dumb as a post. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. But her tail was broken. And when she wagged it, it only wagged halfway. But then the tip would like wag the rest of the way. So it made a Z shape. And so we called her Z. Z. And Charm hated Z and Z loved everything in the universe. And it was, it was just the best. Z was the cutest little poof ball of a cat and maybe weighed like six, seven pounds. Like she was just tiny and poof. And in the sunshine, she had stripes the rest of the time, she just looked like she had a bad paint job. Like she, she was just the cutest little thing. And then I went off to college and like didn't have cats and traveled the world and went to grad school and then moved to New York and never had pets because I'm allergic to cats and, you know, just wasn't in the, in the cards. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine's little brother got a, got a cat, got a kitten that was an obsidian cat, which is a, a purebred where they're kind of like reddish and sleek. They look like little tiny pumas. Um, and I went to go meet this kitten because, oh my God, of course I'm going to go meet the kitten. And I'm snuggling with this kitten and I'm not sneezing. I'm like, why am I not sneezing? And they're like, oh, they're like, you know, a low allergen cat. And there's other cats that are low allergen cats. And this breeder actually breeds Devon Rexes, okay. which are super low allergen. So I start looking into Devon Rexes and they're the only natural occurring, like lately naturally occurring breed of cats that are deemed as a breed. 
there an accident that happened in Devon, England. Oh. Uh, there was a colony of cats at a mine there that had curly fur. Yeah. And one of the tomcats mated with a house cat and produced all these curly furred little kittens. <laughs> and the the lady that had the house cat like was like, well, I'm going to see if we can keep doing this. And all of a sudden there was this new breed of cats. <laughs> and so Devon Rexes have short curly fur, uh, really big ears and giant eyes. And they're super curious and they have to be involved in everything. Uh, but they're low allergen. So I contacted a bunch of breeders and I set them tea towels to let the kittens all snuggle with them. And they came back and I like rubbed the tea towels all over my face and was like, oh my God, I'm not sneezing. I'm totally getting a cat. And, <laughs> you know, like there's not that many Devon Rex breeders in the US. Mm-hmm. And so every time I'd like, be like, okay, I want this one. They'd be like, oh, no, it's already taken. I'm like, okay, I want this one. Already taken. And then I, I got a cat. I'm going to get this one. It's a little black one. She was so cute. And then she died on my birthday oh. for failure to thrive. And I was like, I'm never going to get a cat. And then I, a breeder, one of the breeders I've been in contact with was like, well, I got this one boy left over. Uh, he's got a lot of personality. <laughs> And I went, I'll take them. And she dropped off this little tiny cat to me. And that's Deflator Mouse. Okay. And he looks like a bat, hence the name Deflator Mouse, which means the bat in German. It's a, okay. a, an opera by Strauss. It's a very silly opera. And Deflator Mouse was a very silly kitten. And he has to climb. He has to be the highest in the room Mm. all the time always always wants to be the highest in the room he's a huge talker it's kind of amazing he hasn't been talking throughout this whole thing (laughs) yeah normally he's 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 narrating what's going on through the day usually very entertaining but he understands english he knows his name he knows what you're talking about if i sit there and go i don't have time to feed you right now go talk to russell he'll go to my husband and tell Russell he wants dinner time. And Russell be like, all right, all right, give me a second. I'll go make you dinner. Like you can understand him. Like Mm. he's 100% one of those cats that if they could speak English would speak English. And I think he's such a grumpy old man at this age because he still hasn't figured out how to speak English. (laughs) And all he really wants to do is communicate with people. Like he has things to say and he has a lot of things to say damn it like (laughs) he has a lot of rules yeah Uh, you have to like you know it's whatever time o'clock it is you're supposed to be in the living room right now why aren't you in the living room oh it's 11 o'clock at night that's bedtime folks come on (laughs) time to go to bed you know it's dinner time you're supposed to be in the kitchen now not still watching jeopardy (laughs) why aren't you in the kitchen making dinner and He's super hyper as a kitten, super, super hyper, which apparently Devon Rexes can be, although aren't normally. Normally they're pretty chill, theoretically. Mm-hmm. And so I used to do play dates for him with my neighbor's cats in Brooklyn, which completely defeats the purpose of having a low allergenic cat in your house if you then have to have play dates with a normal house cat in your house every day. Yeah. 
but whatever, whatever, whatever my cat wants, he can have. So he had play dates with my cats that Lenny, the neighbor cat, they would talk to each other through the wall. And then like, you know, like <laughs> for real, you'd open the door Lenny would come running out, wait for me to open my door. He'd come running in and they'd run and chase and wrestle for a couple hours and they'd have snack time. And then like Lenny'd be like, okay, I'm ready to go home now. And I'd me, we had our had each other's keys, mostly just to let the other cat into the other person's house to do a play date, bring Lenny home. Oh. And it was just the cutest. They were such good Very friends. Cute. And then they moved. They bought a house, they had kids, they moved, so they needed more space. And Deflator Mouse lost his best friend and he had no one to play with anymore. And he was getting to be a bit of a troublemaker. And my vet was like, you need to get him a kitten. He was four. And I was like, I can't handle another one of him. Like (laughs) I already had to take him for walks. We have to like properly play for hours every day. He just screams all the time. Like I, I can't handle another Deflator Mouse. Mm-hmm. And the vet was like, no, you got to get him a kitten. And I was like, oh. So I started the search for a kitten. And every time I talked to the breeder, I'm like, I need a kitten who really likes to run and chase and wrestle. And they just laugh at me like, what? I thought you were looking for a Devon Rex. Like, they're super chill and calm. Like, And I was like, no, no, mine's not. And then one of the breeders posted this video of what she was calling a special needs kitten that was the, was just super hyper. And if you made eye contact with him, he was, he'd run and jump up in your face and like give you a headbutt. And then if someone else made eye contact with me, run across and get that person and just go back and forth with eye contact. And there was just jumping and running. And I was like, he's perfect. He's perfect. <laughs> I would like that kitten, please. And she was like, mm, are you sure? And I was like, Oh yes. Yes. I'd be that kitten, please. She's like, you have to meet him first. And so I went up to meet him and he'd just been neutered. So he was all like calm. I was like, no, no, no. You promised me a hyper cat. Like you promised me a kitten that was going to run. This isn't a running kitten. And she's like, no, he's, he, he just got neutered. He's going to be better. And so I brought home this little tiny cat who at six months, he only weighed three pounds. Oh, wow. Tiniest runt of the runts of the runts. (laughs) And Devin Rex is never a big cat to start. Like Deflator Mouse is big for the breed and he's a little chubby. So he weighs like 10 and a half pounds. And this tiny little, tiny little cat, gray and white cat, who I then named Panthro after the gray and white panther character in the Thundercats. Because okay. I had a downstairs neighbor who would complain about them running around my, like, you know, 10-pound cat running around my apartment. She kept calling the cops on him for <laughs> noise complaint. <laughs> right. 10-pound cat. Give me a break, lady. And so then I got the second cat. It was like, now they're Thundercats. Like, mm. I'll show you Thundercats. So then we had, like, you know, a whole 13 pounds of cats running around and getting called, getting the cops called on them. Oh my God. And... Panthro and Deflator Mouse. It took me about two weeks and they became, they're the fastest friends. Like there is so much snuggling where one is, the other one is nearby and there's so much running and wrestling. Still Panther is about to turn five 
He topped out at five and a half pounds. He is still the tiniest cat in the world. <laughs> and subsequently his head is like, you know, the size of a, I don't know, a junior cheeseburger. So his brain can't be bigger than a peanut. Like he is not, he is not the sharpest nail in the box. Like he's very cute. He's very soft. He's very friendly. He's, he's dumb as a post, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's very good parrot. He likes to be on everybody's shoulders mm-hmm. and you can walk around with him up there for a long time. He's, he's got pretty good balance. And he still, if you make eye contact with him, he's going to run and jump on your chest and give you a headbutt. Uh, he's one of those cats that likes to seal air. So his, if he's tired, his favorite place to be is to have his nose under your nose Aww. and share your air. That's so uh, cute. And he, he's, he purrs at the drop of a hat and like a little, little motor. He's such a sweet little guy. Yeah. But he is he is he is the the master troublemaker. Like he can escape okay. from anything. Okay. He will slip out the front door before you mm-hmm. even knew that you opened the door. Like he mm-hmm. he's that kind of a troublemaker cat. Like right. he's almost figured out how to open cabinets. <laughs> uh, but as I said, he's not that smart. So he'll grab the handle with one paw, and then support himself vertically with the other paw stuck to the door that he's trying to open. And then he'll pull with all of his might and he'll budget like a couple of centimeters. And then like, you know, the door closed because he's pushing with the other against it with the other leg. And it's so good to watch because you just, you're like, you're so close, little guy. You're so close. So close. Yep. So far. So far, so far. And like running water, moving water is like, magic it just blows his mind you can hear his brain short when you like turn on the faucet he's like i don't understand where does the water come from where does the water go so drains are kind of his favorite mystery and pouring water into a cup like he has to attack it because he just doesn't understand water water is a mystery like ah this is how he knows there is a god water Hilarious. But he's he's a he's a good guy. Yes, he, they sound it. They both sound so sweet. <laughs> well, you know they are both so sweet, and they are both such pains in the ass. Like, oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Oh, that's cats. Yeah. Yep, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but they have their own Instagram, so that I don't post that many pictures of them on my normal Instagram. And. Yes, I was going to ask, like, lastly, if the listeners want to find out more about you and your cats, tell us the Instagrams. Where can we find you? <laughs> the cats are at Panthro Kitten. So it's P-A-N-T-H-R-O-K-I-T-T-E-N. Uh, because when Deflator Mouse was little, I always called him Kitten because Deflator Mouse is just too long to type out when you're talking mm-hmm. about your cat all the time. And then when I got Panthro, his original, like, typing nickname was Micro Kitten because he's just such a tiny little kitten. So I had Kitten and Micro Kitten, but Panthro is actually shorter to type than Micro Kitten. So he kind of got to keep his real name in, in when it came to social media. And uh, and then my my Instagram handle is is Katie Commodore. Really okay. hard to find. <laughs> 
But anyway, Katie, thank you so much. It was thank you. so wonderful speaking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. As you could hear, I was laughing throughout. <laughs> Um, so yes I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you so much likewise to you (laughs) goodbye (laughs) bye thank you so much for listening to this podcast we have some amazing guests on the show who share such invaluable advice stories and inspiration Can you do me a favour? If you like this podcast, please could you rate, review and subscribe. This will help us reach people who can benefit from listening. Another way you could help is if you could tell a friend who you think might enjoy this podcast too. See you next week. Goodbye.